0: It's a choke point. And so now we're, we're you know, th- that's, that's the kinds of structures that identify, uh, that Rebecca and I identify in this book, that you have these structural problems where two firms control all the mobile and those firms have uh, convergent policies that act to the detriment of both audiences and, and, and importantly here, creative workers. Uh, and and takes money out of their pockets, right? Changes the distributional outcome that even if they can claim, oh, well, look at how big the app marketplace is, look at how many billions of dollars apps are generating. Unless you also look at where those billions of dollars go, you don't know anything important about how it's affecting the the, uh, material conditions of creative workers. And so what we did not want to do with this book is write one of those chapter 11 books where there's 10 chapters about how screwed up things are. And then the 11th chapter, we say, hey, everybody go vote harder. We'll, we'll get this. Instead, you know, we take the position that anything that can't go on forever will eventually stop and that when it stops, there will be a crisis. We've had lots of crises in arts policy and in copyright policy over the last couple of decades. There are far more to come. And that when those crises arise, as, as uh, my arch enemy Milton Friedman used to say, um, ideas that are lying around can move from the fringe to the center very quickly. This time,
1: our friend Cory Doctorow returns to the Plutopia podcast. We discuss his latest book, Choke Point Capitalism, and his definition of a choke point. We also explore the impact of mergers and consolidation on American society, the need for increasing enforcement by the FTC and SEC,
2: antitrust law, and much more. Welcome to another episode of the Plutopia News Network podcast. Our guest today is Corey Doctorow. Corey is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist. His most recent book is Choke Point Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Captured Creative Labor Markets and How We'll Win Them Back, which he wrote with Professor Rebecca Giblin of Melbourne Law School. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, guys. How are you? We're doing great. Excellent i was wondering about rebecca giblin and how did you get connected with her on this particular
0: book well you know she's a comrade we've we've worked on copyright issues for decades each um and uh when i was on tour with my book walk away in australia in 2017 we did an event uh at a library in melbourne or a community or uh, a conference center a a venue in melbourne uh, about uh copyright and copyright term extension and how that benefits artists and whether it benefits artists and so on and in the cab uh coming back from the uh the venue and on our way to dinner together we got to talking about just how um how bad the copyright debate is and how you know it has these two uh really contrived uh postures which is that you either take up for team tech Uh, as a proxy for the user or you take up for team entertainment giant as a proxy for the creator and how neither of those are good proxies for anybody they're they're in fact they have more in common with each other than they do with uh, either the consumers of media or the producers of media, who are in fact often the same people, of course, Uh, and that. you know, with, with 40 years of copyright term extension and ex- expansion of the kinds of works that can be copyrighted and expansion of the statutory damages and the easing of the evidentiary burden to get those statutory damages, we have seen the entertainment sector and its tech equivalents, companies like YouTube, grow more profitable than they've ever been. But the distributional outcomes have been pretty dismal. The share of income going to artists, both in real terms and um in in proportional terms has fallen over that whole period and you know out of that discussion of just how how trapped this debate is how trap how 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 much of a trap it becomes for people who who can't talk about um being on team like not big company so long as those two sides are represented by two giants that you have to root for uh that we just can't solve the problem if uh, through through that lens and so um you know over the lockdown uh we got to talking about it more and rebecca asked me if i'd be interested in working on a book with her about it and that's how this book came about
2: and what is the choke point
0: well the choke point is is not unique to tech but tech or to uh, entertainment rather but entertainment has its own distinctive characteristics so the choke point is if you have produced something and there are people who want to buy it or pay you for it. And all of those people are trapped inside some kind of walled garden, right? When there are five giant publishers or four giant um, uh, studios or three giant record labels or two giant ad tech companies or one giant company that sells all the ebooks and audiobooks. they are the firms that you must deal with in order to reach your audience. They have a choke point. And, you know, they will extract from you whatever it is you can sign away at that choke point, and they'll use it to make the choke point tighter. So giving people who have to sell their copyrights to five giant publishers or four giant studios or three giant labels or two giant ad tech companies or one giant ebook vendor more copyright is like giving bullied kids extra lunch money. It doesn't really matter how much lunch money you give those kids. They are not going to get to eat it it also doesn't matter if you uh, uh if if the bullies who take the lunch money spend some of it on a national campaign to feed America's hungry school children if you give those kids extra lunch money they're still not going to eat uh and and instead you have to change that structural problem of there being a choke point where the bullies can stand and take whatever it is you give those people to get through the choke point
1: Back uh, in the early 1970s, when I started writing about music and entertainment, there were uh, a lot of different people that were involved in getting music out, getting it produced, getting it recorded, getting it signed. And in 1978, all of a sudden, there was a what they call the uh, their own Friday Night Massacre. All the really talented ANR people publishing people, songwriters that were involved with a lot of the the major record labels suddenly were gone, and they were replaced by guys with uh, pocket calculators and uh, degrees in accounting, and the quality of music uh, was also gone, and that's continued on through today of these uh, takeovers, and there used to be a lot of record labels. Now, not so much. Is there any way that would ever return to the days of wide open music business rather than the consolidation of just a few big companies?
0: Yeah, I think that that's a, an excellent observation and it's not limited to music. When I was a baby writer, there were 20 publishers in New York and now there's five. Uh, so it's, it's not uh, in any way uh, distinct to music. And I think we ha- it's important to tease apart the causes and effects here. So the there was a mood starting in the mid 1970s, driven by the Chicago School of Economics to become much more tolerant of corporate power and and more specifically of monopolies um, that came into its own. And so that those the people who were behind that project were the MBAs who were moving into the entertainment sector, were the people who are arguing for financialization, greater financialization of all industries. They were the people doing the corporate rating um, and uh, they might have continued sort of as a peripheral irritant, but for the election of Ronald Reagan, which was driven by much the same mood. And with the election of Ronald Reagan, we saw these fringe ideas, of the Chicago School, become mainstream in economics. And in particular, We saw the um, uh, downgrading of antitrust enforcement, which is something that became a bipartisan project and was really reified by uh, every president since. And some of the worst damage was actually done by Democrats, not Republicans, the Telecommunications Act. um, You know, Obama revised uh, the merger guidelines and waved through some really grotesque mergers. Um, This was this was. a bipartisan project. that, You know, Trump was was also terrible, but actually not materially worse than than Obama was, honestly, on mergers. Uh, and you know, if they if they block if they each blocked a few showstopper mergers, it was for their own political reasons and not out of any consistent policy. Uh, the Biden administration, I'll say right off, has made a, a complete reversal with the appointment of Lena Khan, Tim Wu at the White House, and uh, Lena Khan is the chair of the FTC and Jonathan Cantor is running the antitrust division at the DOJ, we actually see for the first time since the Reagan era, uh, antitrust enforcement. And the reason all this is important is if you wanna understand how the um, consolidation of firms came about to to lead us to this juncture where it's not just the entertainment sector that's very consolidated, as Tom Eastman, a a software developer in New Zealand has has, uh, wryly observed that you know, I'm old enough to remember when the internet wasn't five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. You know, two companies own all the beer. One company makes all the eyeglasses. One company does all the professional wrestling. Three companies do all the international shipping. All of this had a, a common and not hard to understand cause, which is that we stopped enforcing um, merger uh, prohibitions, antitrust merger prohibitions. We let companies buy each other, right? And and so it's as though we used to put down rat poison and we didn't have rats, and then we stopped putting down rat poison, and now we have rats. Now, correlation is not causation, but it it is not a huge stretch to draw a causal inference that when you stop enforcing a law that's supposed to prevent something from happening, and then that thing happens, that it happened because you stopped enforcing the law, right? This, this feels like a kind of no-brainer. So the question is, can we fix it? Well, we can so definitely- that- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, John. I was just
2: going to say, how much can we fix just by enforcing the existing antitrust laws? Is that going to be enough?
0: So I think we have to divide that into two categories. What can we do to make stop it from getting worse and what can we do to make it better? So we can definitely enforce uh, the merger guidelines that were already on the books. Um, the FTC and the DOJ have both announced they're going to start doing that. They have both blocked some pretty big mergers lately. Uh, Simon & Schuster merger with Penguin Random House is a, is a big one in, in the area where I work, but there have been lots of these that have been headed off at the pass. Um, there's also some grumblings that they're going to start um, enforcing other parts of, of uh, merger uh, scrutiny that specifically relates to buying large firms that buy small firms. Um, so right now, the merger guidelines say that if the acquisition involves a purchase price of less than $101 million, the FTC and the DOJ don't even look at it. But you can buy 100 companies for $100 million in a row, which is what's happening, for example, with every dentist practice in the country, um, which is being bought out by private equity, every veterinary practice, same thing, Pet groomers, funeral homes. We're seeing these mass scale rollups. Um, and because each of them sits below that $101 million threshold, the fact that they make a firm that, whose combined value is in the billions uh, does, does not trigger antitrust scrutiny under current guidelines. But the law re- does have space for this. In fact, the law requires them to do it. The, the agencies are not currently enforcing the law. And so I think that there's good reason to believe that the agencies will start enforcing that law. But that leaves you still with a giant problem. Because we still have all this consolidation in the supply chain, and if you leave one part of the supply chain unconsolidated while allowing other parts to consolidate. They can visit enormous pain on the disorganized parts of the the supply chain, so think of how the uh, permissiveness towards pharmaceutical mergers produced price gouging that left the hospitals unable to afford drugs, and so the hospitals form regional monopolies where they didn't compete against each other in sort of 10 and 20 mile radiuses and then turned to the um, the uh, pharma companies and said you cannot sell your drugs anywhere in this whole region, you know, five counties, 10 counties, unless you lower your prices because we have a cartel we are we have a monopoly on the health care in this region, but then the hospitals turned around and used that bargaining power to screw the insurers and say none of your insured people will be able to visit any hospital for a hundred mile radius unless you agree to pay five times what you're currently paying. And then the insurers all formed monopolies as well. They merged each other to monopoly. Uh, And now you have these loose flapping ends uh, in the form of healthcare workers who've are working longer hours under worse conditions for lower pay than ever and you have patients at the other end who are paying more for worse health care than ever and in the middle there's some jostling about about the distribution of how much money they're picking from our pockets at either end you know pharma wants to get more out of the pharma benefit managers the pharma benefit managers want to get more out of the hospitals the hospitals want to get more out of the insurers but um the the uh, uh all told Um, The one thing they all agree on, the consensus they have, is that patients should get as little care as they can get away with at the highest price they can charge, and doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers should be paid the least for the most work they can extract. So how do we demonopolize the supply chain so that we don't leave, for example, um, the six publishers that we have now at the mercy, or five publishers rather, at the mercy of the one Amazon which is slowly tightening the screws on them, and and making life just impossible for them, demonopolizing the sector is really hard, it took 69 years to break up AT&T, and so, you know, as the old joke goes, if you wanted to get there I wouldn't start from here, this is a very bad situation we're in, and it's going to take a lot of work to demonopolize the sector, now one ray of hope we know from earlier long-run antitrust actions antitrust enforcement actions is that they have a disciplining effect on the whole sector when ibm was dragged up and down for 12 years by the doj eventually wriggling free by spending more on their outside counsel than every lawyer working for the doj cost combined uh, for 12 consecutive years they called this antitrusts vietnam we know that all of the other companies in the sector were unwilling to risk the wrath of the doj because they saw what ibm was going through and how costly it was and we know that even when ibm wriggled off the hook that they changed their behavior substantially as a result of the enforcement action because they didn't want to find themselves back in the crosshairs. To mix a little metaphor there, so when they you know decided to build a PC, they built it out of commodity components because they knew the DOJ didn't like vertical integration, where you know one company makes all the parts and then makes the finished good. They didn't make their own operating system because they knew they knew the DOJ didn't like software hardware integration. So they got uh, Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Uh, you know, who had a little company called Micro-Soft to make an operating system for them, which they did not buy because they knew that they didn't want that the merger scrutiny would not allow them to buy a, a nascent Microsoft. And then when Tom Jennings, who created FidoNet, was hired by Phoenix Computers to reverse engineer those ROMs in the PC, and so that Phoenix could start making pirate ROMs, so that Dell, Compaq, and Gateway could make clones of the PC ibm just looked the other way so it may be that picking a couple of exemplars right executing a few admirals to encourage the others will actually make a difference even if it takes 69 years to break up amazon and apple and google it might discipline the rest of the companies in the sector there's also my weird idea for this i have an idea that i don't even know is a good idea but i think might be a working idea which is that we could um declare a three-year uh, tax holiday on capital gains from companies that uh, spin off divisions that they acquired in economically substantial uh, mergers in the 21st century, so that if you demonopolize yourself, you don't pay tax on the gains from it. And generally, when companies break themselves up, they actually the two companies end up worth more than the one company was prior to the 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 um, the demerger. Uh, and, and, you know, I, again, like I'm old enough to remember when corporate raiders bought companies, not to roll them up, but to break them apart. And I say, maybe we bring those bastards out of retirement for one last big job. Right. And we, we see if they can't do the activist investor thing and shatter all of these giant companies.
1: Well, speaking of giant companies, you, uh, wrote in the book about, uh, the radio business, the news business. And how radio used to be a lot of local radio stations. i worked some. John and I grew up in this little town in West Texas, and we had great radio stations. And they're all clones now. They've been purchased by big chains that uh, do all the programming from New York or Los Angeles or, or wherever they have their bunker. And there's no local anything. It's just plug, you know, your, your station in. And that shouldn't have happened. There used to be laws that prevented that kind of thing, but you know, when they took all the laws away, you know, they created a handful of really huge broadcasting companies. And is there any way you think that that would ever be reversed or is, or are we just stuck with those big giant, mostly conservative radio chains?
0: Yeah, well, so you know, you can thank Bill Clinton for that. That that was the Telecoms Act mid '90s that allowed for that merger consolidation, and it allowed these uh, right wing t- talk radio to take over the airwaves. Um, there's actually a really good series that was just um, uh, uh, aired on uh, on the media, the the uh, New York NPR show called "The Divided Dial," that actually does an amazing job of telling the story of how uh, deep pocketed, uh, few deep pocketed billionaires finance this roll up of the airwaves, uh, including, you know, clear channel, which is now called iHeartRadio pivoting to this right wing talk format. And one of the things that, that they point out is that telecoms law over the air terrestrial broadcast, it it has a really different character to all other forms of media in the U S because it is the one form of media that is licensed by statute in the public interest and you know i'm i I think that um people have a certain romantic attachment to the fairness doctrine and it it wasn't what they thought it was but the point of the fairness doctrine which you know on its face violates the first amendment because it's compelled speech the point of the fairness doctrine was to um uh ensure that the public interest was being met now again i don't think a fairness doctrine is going to solve our problems here the last thing you would want is for every time you aired something saying vaccines work and the virus is real to have to give equal time to people who said it was a chinese hoax and the vaccines would put microchips in your blood so i I don't i don't think the fairness doctrine is what we want here but the point is that there is scope for regulatory intervention you can't stop newspapers from publishing what they want that's the first amendment they're not using any public asset to to get there but where there is a uh, a public asset involved where there is the the public airwaves that are licensed but not sold to these terrestrial broadcasters in the public interest there is regulatory scope and indeed a regulatory obligation to intervene to prevent um uh, a distortion of community priorities in the in the radio. The 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 radio station should be reflecting the priorities of everyone in their community, not just the minority who are you know frothing uh, neo John Burchers.
2: That you know that makes me think of the. This is kind of shifting gears to social media, but that makes me think of the argument that Twitter is the public square, and and some people believing that there should be legislation. To force twitter to carry all content that sort of thing um
0: what do you think of that argument so i think it's it's mistaken and i think it it um it points to a real problem or a real division in the way that people think about monopoly and and tech uh i i think that um there are people who think that Elon Musk is the wrong guy to be in charge of 300 million Twitter users or that Mark Zuckerberg is the wrong person to be in charge of 4 billion 3 billion Facebook and and Meta users. And then there are people who think that no one should be in charge of 300 million Twitter users or 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 3 billion Facebook users that 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 job shouldn't exist. That um that that there just isn't a three-ring binder thick enough To encapsulate all the moderation policies that capture all the community norms of billions of people in in hundreds of countries speaking thousands of languages Uh, and that really what you need is is a more federated small you know you could call it a jeffersonian approach versus a hamiltonian approach where um, communities run their own servers they federate with other servers they block the servers that are beyond the pale for them um, you know, that something that looks a lot like Mastodon, in other words, and where it, rather than depending on giant companies to have the discretion to decide when your privacy is threatened or not and block some interoperators and not others or block, block some federators and not others. We have statutes that tell all firms what the rules of the road are for privacy and you can go beyond it, but you can't go below it. So right now, Facebook or Twitter would say, well, if we federate. Then all of our harassment policies, all of our privacy policies, all of our harmful content policies become impossible to enforce because third parties will be exchanging data with our server. And when they take our users data into their own hands, they might use it in ways that um, we would prohibit uh, to the detriment of our users. And um, that's not wrong. Uh, It is true that Apple does block some bad apps from its app store, but it's also true that Apple uses the fact that it has the only app store for iOS to charge a 30% commission on in-app sales. And because um, audiobooks have a 20% margin and eBooks have a 25% margin, nobody can sell books uh, at a profit on an iPhone except for Apple, which means that Apple Books is the only way to buy books through an app on an iPhone because everybody else would lose money if they tried it and that means that we have a sort of planned economy for culture that is planned in cupertino and that is not a good outcome either and so what we need to be able to do is rather than try and parse out when the company acts in its shareholders interest and when it acts in its users interest we should just have user interest be publicly accountable uh, at a a minimum threshold set by statute and not left to the whim of a boardroom if for no other reason that even if you trust tim cook to have good judgment What happens when Tim Cook has a heart attack and Apple shareholders put Elon Musk in his seat?
1: Well, uh, the whole thing with Apple and their app store, I just recently encountered a problem with the way they run, the way they allow apps into the app store. I have a couple of internet radio stations that I host, have hosted for like 20 years almost, and I would like to have an app that would be specific to my stations and it sh- it shouldn't be that much of a technical challenge. But the problem is Apple says, well, yeah, you can do that, but you have to get a $99 a year license to be an app developer, even if you're not the developer, just to get it in there because it's an independent app. And that seems to be common in not just, uh, you know, Apple, but, you know, uh, Google as well. You know, it's uh-huh. just, a gatekeeper that uh, really doesn't want anyone in the gate.
0: Well, it's a choke point. And so now we're're we're, you know th- that's that's the kinds of structures that identify uh, that Rebecca and I identify in this book that you have these structural problems where two firms control all the mobile and those firms have uh, convergent policies that act to the detriment of both audiences and and, and importantly here creative workers uh and and takes money out of their pockets right changes the distributional outcome that even if they can claim oh well look at how big the app marketplace is look at how many billions of dollars apps are generating unless you also look at where those billions of dollars go you don't know anything important about how it's affecting the the uh, material conditions of creative workers, and so in the, the we, what we did not want to do with this book is write one of those chapter eleven books where there's ten chapters about how screwed up things are, and then the eleventh chapter we say, "Hey, everybody, go vote harder. We'll we'll get this." Instead, you know, we take the position that anything that can't go on forever will eventually stop. And that when it stops there will be a crisis we've had lots of crises in arts policy and in copyright policy over the last couple of decades, there are far more to come, and that when those crises arise as as uh, my arch enemy Milton Friedman used to say. um, Ideas that are lying around can move from the fringe to the Center very quickly, and so, in the second half of the book. We, um, we we spell out very detailed shovel-ready technical proposals for systemic interventions to change the market, not things that you or I can do individually. You're not gonna shop your way out of monopoly capitalism in the same way that you're not gonna recycle your way out of the environmental crisis, um, but rather policies that we can use the next time someone says, hey, why don't we just see if making copyright last even longer solves this problem? It didn't work for the last 40 years, but maybe it'll work this time. So for example, Um, We have a proposal for interoperability, both as a a mandate and as a a kind of new legal regime. So in the European Union, the Digital Markets Act is actually going to require Apple and the other large firms to allow third parties to offer app stores. Um, And uh, Apple has, in fact, just made a a very sketchy announcement to, to the effect that they're going to go ahead with this. We don't know yet what the details are. And I've got a post that's going to go up probably later today or tomorrow on EFF that will explain just how they could get it wrong, what we should be looking out for in terms of weasel words uh, when they when they finally announce the formal policy. Um, but uh, it's not enough to just force companies to stand up APIs, although that is a good start. And here in the United States, there's a bill called the Access Act that looks like it's probably gonna die and not get voted on in this session, but which is in its second session of being introduced, it's already passed out of committee once, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it reintroduced in the next session. And so, um, you know, I I think that that mandatory interoperability is a really good idea. I think on top of that, though, we should be creating defenses in law for people who create their own interoperable interfaces with scraping, reverse engineering, and so on. Right now, those people face enormous legal penalties under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, under contract law theories like tortious interference, under trade secrecy, and so on. And these are used in very anti-competitive ways by large firms to stop uh, small market entrants from doing what they have done through their whole history. You now Facebook had an app that you could give your login credentials to and it would visit MySpace on your behalf and put your waiting messages from MySpace in your Facebook inbox so that you could quit MySpace even before your friends had and still stay in touch with your friends. Apple reverse engineered the file formats of every Microsoft Office application and rolled them into iWork suite so that you could uh, you keep your Mac but still communicate perfectly with the majority of computer users who are using Windows. Um, If you tried to do either of those things to either of those companies today, they would reduce you to radioactive rubble and they would claim to be protecting their users when they did it. So we need to establish those those protections in law. That's one of the more esoteric uh, proposals we make. We also have proposals in the book that look a lot more like one weird trick. Like um, if you're entitled to royalties for your music or your games or your books or your movies, Your contract probably entitles you to also to audit the books of the company that pays you those royalties, but if you do audit those books, you will often find discrepancies. And for reasons I can't even begin to speculate on, in almost every case those discrepancies are in the favor of the label or the studio or the publisher and not the creator. In fact, we cite a company here in Los Angeles that did tens of thousands of record contract audits over decades where they found discrepancies in every case except one. The discrepancy was in the favor of the label. There was only one case where they had overpaid an artist. Again, I, I have no idea how this could be true. I assume it's some kind of vexing uh, localized probability storm uh, that that is stuck in the accounting departments of record companies. But when you say, hey, guys, uh, you stole this money from me. Give it back. They will say, oh, no, you're mistaken. You can't really do math. But you know, because we know you, you can't afford to sue us, and because we don't want any hard feelings, how about if we offer you a settlement, we'll give you a share of what you think we owe you, and you just have to sign this non-disclosure agreement so that nobody ever finds out how we stole money from you, particularly the other people we're stealing money from. And also you have to promise that your auditor is never going to audit us again uh, because he knows where we hide the money. And um, when that happens uh it ends up um stealing money from lots of creators but all of these contracts are settled in four states new york california washington state because of amazon and the games companies and and tennessee because of nashville and contract is a matter of state law so if we were to amend the the state contract law of four states with a short bill that said it is uh, a matter of public policy non-disclosure cannot be enforced where it pertains to uh, material omissions or misstatements uh, on uh, royalty statements, you would put more money in the pockets of more artists all over the world than forty years of copyright term extensions combined, uh, and you know you would you would do it instantaneously this is a a crack in the machine that if you stick a crowbar in and wiggle it around money pours out of the machine into the pockets of artists it has a direct relationship with their material conditions not one of these sort of theoretical magic underpants gnomes direct relationships where it's like first we extend copyright then something happens then artists get richer
2: i always thought it's kind of weird to hear art uh, well musicians complaining about streaming services not paying them you know, not paying them sufficiently for the work they're doing. And it's like, is this new?
0: It's not new. I mean, that's that's the way it's been for musicians all along, right? Well, you're right that the contracts were very bad. Um, historically, they've been really, really bad. The Beatles uh, used to get one penny per LP, but not the whole penny. They only got 85% of the penny. 15% of the penny was taken out for marketing expenses. They split the remainder four ways, but they had to pay their agent 10% out of that. And the Beatles had a good, you know, they were white. (laughs) If you look at the contracts that Rhythm and Blues, Soul Blues and and Black Rock and Roll artists signed, jazz artists and so on, they're even worse. Um, Now those contracts got substantially better when the tech sector started to bid against the entertainment sector for the labor of creative workers. They started to to bid up the deals on both sides, but as soon as the tech sector became as concentrated as the entertainment sector was, not only did those premiums start to disappear, but you actually saw a merger of tech and content. So Universal, Sony, and Warner control 70% of the music uh, uh, recording uh, copyrights in the world and 60% of the music compositions in the world. Uh, and they um, did, they, they gained that control by uh, buying up dying record labels at fire sale prices and anti-competitive mergers. And um, when Spotify wanted to get off the ground and, and start a new service for distributing music, they absolutely had to deal with Universal, Sony, and Warner. The one thing that we learned in the Napster lawsuit is just ignoring them and going around them and hoping that um, you could escape. Uh, did you no good availed you nothing? And so um, they... Uh, were forced. they forced Spotify to give Spotify a giant equity stake to the three labels. They're business partners of Spotify. And as business partners, they negotiate an extremely low per stream rate so that the royalty paid to them as, um, as record labels who have to uh, then share that royalty with their talent, that's as small as possible. But the dividends paid to them as co-owners of Spotify which now has a very low cash basis, which they don't have to share with artists are very large. In fact, every dollar they take out of Spotify as a royalty is a dollar they can't take out as a dividend. And because they negotiated what was called a most favored nation status clause, none of the uh, other labels, the 30% of music represented by independent small labels and individual artists could get any more than the the record labels. But the record labels were able to negotiate top-ups where they would get a minimum monthly payout from Spotify. So say Warner was entitled to $10 million a month from from Spotify. Uh, if only 5 million of that could be attributed to those very, very cheap streams, the other 5 million was an unattributable royalty that they could spend on anything they wanted. Uh, they could give it to all of their artists, some of their artists, one of their artists, none of their artists. They could put it in a reserve fund. They could bonus up their executives. They could give it to their shareholders. It was their money to play with. And so this was a, an extremely sleazy deal. And it shows you how expanding the, the scope and term of copyright gave these labels, these extraordinarily long-lived weapons that they could use to shape the future of the industry so that it shifted ever more income away from workers and to the capital forces, to the labels themselves.
2: Well, I wonder how big a dent a system like Bandcamp is putting in all of that. Is Bandcamp making much of a difference for
0: artists? Well, Bandcamp is certainly very important. Um, there are a lot of artists whose music is not stream friendly. Um, artists who produce, you know, long, challenging compositions that you are profoundly changed by, but that you don't want to listen to more than a couple of times a year, can't make a living on Spotify, where you have to have a million streams to, you know, pay your pay your rent. Um, and Bandcamp really helps those artists by by selling them. Um, uh, selling the selling their work uh, on a kind of one-off basis for real money um, and by, you know, making it easier for fans to connect with those artists. And Bandcamp's done a lot of right things. So, you know, if you are a fan of an artist and you sign up to follow them on Bandcamp, Bandcamp notifies you whenever they have a new record. Unlike if you sign up to follow someone on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you don't find out every time they post. Uh, the, you know, but all of those services now want you to pay to boost your content to get to the people who said they wanted to hear from you. Bandcamp also lets you take that audience with you. If you go somewhere else, you can continue to email them if you resign Bandcamp. And, and Bandcamp um, serves all the music, unencumbered by digital rights management. So if you quit Bandcamp and go somewhere else, your fans can follow you without having to leave their library behind because it's locked into a proprietary format that they need a Bandcamp app to play. So in all of those regards, it's very good. It's a little frightening that they were subject to a merger this year. Usually that precipitates um, some kind of bad conduct down the road because the new owners always want to find new sources of revenue. But so far, it's it's going well. But Bandcamp is a is a tiny intervention at the margin. It shows you that you can run profitable, good businesses uh, that respect artists. But um, it is not itself a solution. It's merely a counterexample.
1: Well, you uh, unveiled something that I was not aware of in the field of ambient music. The knockoff label i i i think you said it was uh, in in the book you said it was a swedish label is used to create mood music those uh, those nasty chill channels that uh, irritate me no no end because i have some friends who just love to put that on when they have you visiting and it's like please get that off but is this uh that common to have that much you know music just being churned out at a at an ambient factory, I guess.
0: Yeah, so that you know, playlists are another choke point, right? If you are accustomed to listening to playlists rather than uh, listening to albums, then if you leave Spotify, you leave those playlists too. And so, by uh, habituating artists to listening to playlists instead of. Uh, albums, um, Spotify locks those users in, which allows it to ring greater concessions from musicians. So there are lots of concessions that it rings from them. One is that if you wanna be included in a playlist, you have to pay them payola. So you have to take that uh, infinitesimal sum of money you can expect to get from a stream and surrender most of that for inclusion in the hottest playlists on Spotify. Also Spotify, because it owns those playlists, it can just take artists out of the playlist arbitrarily and replace them with sound alikes um and yes they're they're mostly swedish that's where spotify is headquartered and as uh, spotify commissions work ma- works made for hire that aren't entitled to any royalties so again they're just eliminating even that tiny amount of money that they give to artists they literally i mean the ideal situation for spotify is that artists aren't entitled to anything that's that's what spotify would like
2: it seems to me that the ideal thing would be to have a a system kind of like Bandcamp, only it's a cooperative. It's owned by the musicians themselves. And we actually, I talked to a a free jazz artist about this. He was thinking about setting up a a, a kind of Spotify for free jazz. And the idea we had was that, uh, or maybe I was giving this to him because I was part of a co-op at the time, and I was saying this should be a cooperative. Uh-huh. You know, well it,
0: you. Yeah, I mean, we, we cite uh, a library system in, um, in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I should note I'm a, I'm a visiting library school professor at the UNC in Chapel Hill, so I'm very proud of this, although I had nothing to do with it, it just warms my heart, where they set up a, a, a municipal uh, cooperative music streaming service through the library that had a unique model where you paid a little bit per listen. But if you listen to it enough that you would have bought it out, then you never had to pay again. It was yours and it was only local artists. So it was about kind of celebrating the terroir of uh, of, of music in Chapel Hill. We also, in our book, have a case study of a photography co-op where a couple of stock photographers who sold their business to um, uh, one of the big ones, I think it was Corvus, uh, later felt bad about it and use their money to start a worker-owned co-op of stock photographers who make more money from their stock photography than they would anywhere else. And it's a worker-owned co-op, so it's a workplace democracy, so everybody gets a say in how it's run, and that produces a much better outcome. So I think that you're right, there is scope for, for worker co-ops, I think that's a part of it. We, we kind of take a like a, a holistic approach to demonopolization. Uh, It's I think reminiscent uh, of the Biden administration's approach. The Biden administration had a um, an executive order in July of 2020 that Tim Wu wrote, who's the White House antitrust czar. And Tim and I have known each other since elementary school. We we grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons together in Toronto, and uh, and and the antitrust memo cites 72 different administrative powers across all of the administrative agencies that the Biden administration can invoke to fight monopolies labor laws agriculture laws transport laws and so on and they've been working their way down that list of 72 items and they've hit every mark so far Um, they're they are on schedule to do all 72 of those things and in the same way we talk about how better metadata and better contracting rules and better antitrust enforcement and better labor enforcement and libraries and hackers and you know, uh, international standards bodies can all intervene to to demonopolize the entertainment sector and change those distributional outcomes so that artists don't just get the right to feel angry at their fans because their copyrights were violated, but instead get to put braces on their kids' teeth and pay for the roof over their heads.
1: Reading your book uh, reminds me of the cliche, money is the root of all evil. And I, since it seems to point out that big money, is the root of all really big evils and uh that seems to be common through all the things you covered that it's the really big money that comes in and takes what used to be small independent companies and either sucks them up into their kingdom or kills them
0: yeah well you're you're getting at something important here because you know the the change in antitrust law was a change in, in approach so historically antitrust law was suspicious of corporate power per se. The idea was that if a company got big enough, it would just become ungovernable. Um, Too big to fail and too big to jail. Senator John Sherman, who wrote the Sherman Act of 1890, which is the first American antitrust law, said, you know, if we would not suffer a king to rule over us, we should not suffer an autocrat of trade. That um, it it was just a matter of firms getting too big for their dang britches. And you know, if you have um, libertarian tendencies and you would like a small government, Remember that the government has to be bigger than the firms it's supposed to be keeping in check. So one way to survive with a small government is to make sure that the firms that that government is supposed to regulate are even smaller. If you let those firms grow, if the government allows those firms to grow until it's bigger than it, then it's going to have to bulk up to fight to fight them off to keep them in line. Um, and you know, in the 1980s, under the administrations of a guy named um, uh, Robert Bork, who you know he's the the Nixon's solicitor general who Reagan put up for a Supreme Court seat and whose crimes were so egregious that we now say someone is borked when something really bad happens to them because of how badly his confirmation hearing went. Bork proposed this kind of conspiracy theory that people had been deliberately misreading the antitrust laws and that really that the antitrust laws liked monopolies and celebrated them as efficient and said that they should only be prevented when they were inefficient and raised prices. And when they raised prices because they had a monopoly and not because the price of oil had gone up or the price of labor had gone up, which is something that you could only discover if you use these complicated mathematical models that his pools of the uni- pals at uh, the University of Chicago School of Economics knew how to build and no one else knew how to build and which always showed that monopolies were fine. Um, and, you know, when we started to tolerate concentrated corporate power. Um, we got a lot of cor- concentrated corporate power. It doesn't have to be that way. Like we have beaten back concentrated p- corporate power before. We can do it again. It's not like some lost art, like, you know, how did they build the pyramids without machine tools, right? Like we know how they fought back monopolies. We have, we still have the tools they use to do it. We just have to pick those tools up and start using them. Uh, it's a long project and the best time to get started would have been 40 years ago, but the second best time is right goddamn now. And so we should be doing it. Uh, and, and, you know, um, it, it, you see it in these roll-ups of small businesses, you know, that is a choice that we tolerate, not a not a, a natural phenomenon that has to occur. We historically blocked that. And in fact, when you ask these uh, pro-monopoly extremists why we shouldn't enforce the antitrust law the old way, they'll say specifically because roll-ups are great. You know, the case that they all cite as a reason that... Um, antitrust law shouldn't be enforced the way we used to, is a case called Vons Market. So Vons is a is a chain of grocery stores here in Southern California. And they tried to um, buy a small competitor, which would have given them a 7.5% market share in Southern California. And the Department of Justice blocked it under something called the Incipiency Standard, which is basically, we just watched you buy a bunch of other small companies, and you're going to buy this one. And if you keep doing it, you're going to end up having a monopoly. So we're just going to stop you right here. No, right? and they say oh well look at how arbitrary this enforcement was it wasn't arbitrary it was calculated and right it was absolutely the right thing to do and you know we could the supreme court upheld Vaughn's. we could go back to that precedent we don't have to be prisoners of these uh uh, lunatics from from the university of chicago who uh, we can we can strike out on our own we don't have to we don't have to let them keep their cold dead hands on our policies forever anything that can't how do, we do that eventually don't, stops
2: don't we need to have i mean this seems to call for a political movement
0: really. um, i think you're absolutely right and um and you know one of the points that we make in the book is to cite the work of james boyle who's a great copyright scholar at duke university and jamie talks about how when the um term ecology wasn't in wide use people didn't know that they were fighting the same fight you know if you care about owls and i care about the ozone layer how are we on the same side you know what a charismatic nocturnal avians have to do with the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere but it's when we use we take the term ecology and we understand that it um refers to all of these different issues that these are all intermingled that we create a movement that gets shit done and i think that this is how we're going to make a difference Um, In in this corporate power thing, because as I said before, it's not just creators who suffer under corporate power, Uh, corporate excessive corporate power has immiserated people in a million ways in a million trades and in a million sectors. And once we realize that the reason that you're angry. That all the beer comes from two companies is the reason that I'm angry that all the glasses come from one company is the reason that we're all angry that all the shipping comes from three companies is the reason that we're angry that you know all of the. um, uh, all of the pro wrestling has been dwindled down to one company and all the performers you grew up loving in the eighties are now begging for pennies on GoFundMe to die with dignity, their workplace related injuries, because the owner of that one monopoly reclassified them all as contractors and left them to die, taking away their health care. You know, that, that once we realize that, then we have a political movement. Then we have a movement against monopoly in all its forms.
2: So other than writing the book and, um, you know, having conversations like this, are you doing anything yourself to to try to, I guess, foment this kind
0: of movement? Well, yeah, I'm talking to people like you. I wrote a book about yeah, it. Yeah. Well, I wrote another I book thought, about yeah. it. I've got, I've got another book coming out next year from Verso called The Internet Con about interoperability that, that uh, you know, really hones in on uh, or homes in on how we can... Um, Change the way that uh, tech is structured to make it much more democratic and less monopolistic. So yeah, no, this is this is the thing I know how to do. It's the thing I'm good at. So that's what I'm doing.
2: But my real question is, when are you going to run for president?
0: Ha! <laughs> huh. Well, first of all, I'm I was born in Canada, so I can't oh uh, damn. second of all i lack the detail orientation to make me a good politician i am much better on the outside of the tent pissing in than i am on the inside of the tent pissing out so uh i i i am i would never say never but i would be very surprised if i woke up one day and found myself running for high office
1: well you shouldn't let that residency thing uh keep you out of it because that's never stopped the republicans here i mean <laughs> they, they play funny games with, oh, that, that really is my uh, district because I, I rent a,
0: a barn. There. <laughs> right, right. Well, the difference here is that it's in the U.S. Constitution. I don't know if you remember when there was a movement among certain Republicans to amend that clause so that Arnold Schwarzenegger could run for president mm-hmm. of all people. But yeah, I, I, don't, think, um, uh, I don't think that I uh, am eligible nor qualified.
2: I think they're considering an amendment so that Putin can run for president, aren't they?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that, that seems uh, like something some of them would be into.
2: It's like playing fantasy games. Um, I think that we have reached the end of yeah, the I gotta time that you are able to allocate. now.
0: Yeah, that's right. It was lovely talking to you guys. Um, yeah, this I'm, was great. I'm, I'm almost certainly coming to Austin for South by so uh, and to speak at UT. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing you all when I'm there.
2: Looking forward to seeing you.
1: You can follow the Plutopia News Network at plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lebkoski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.